Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. On this special episode of Bible Worm, we talk with Dr. Brent Strawn, Professor of Old Testament at Duke University Divinity School and the author of Lies My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament. We discuss common misunderstandings Christians may have about the Hebrew Scriptures and how a better understanding of the Scripture can enrich both the life of faith and interfaith relationships among Christians and Jews. We discuss the relationship of the Bible to history and whether historically accurate is an adequate understanding of what it means to say that the Bible is true. We discuss God's violence in the Old Testament and the difference between a God who is wrathful by nature and a God who exercises wrath on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. And we think about the challenges of interfaith dialogue about Scripture and whether it is worth it, in the end, to read with people unlike ourselves. We hope you enjoy this special episode. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? Hello, Bobby. And we, hello to Brent Strawn. Hello, how's it going? So we're doing a special episode this week for the first time ever on the Bible Worm Podcast. We have a guest who is going to join us to talk a little bit about the Hebrew Bible. And as Amy says, it is Brent Strawn, who is professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School. He's here to talk with us a little bit about his book, Lies My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament, published by Westminster John Knox. Uh, Brent is a highly regarded scholar of the Old Testament. He was for a while at Emory and has recently moved to Duke. But of all the amazing things he's done in his career, probably this greatest distinction is that he had the great good fortune of being the professor to both Amy and myself before there was Bible Worm, right? That's right. That's right. It was, it was the high point. It's been downhill since then. Yeah, I mean, how could it, <laughs> really, how could it get any better than that? Yeah. I was honored to be on, on not one, but both of y'all's dissertation committees, as I recall. Yeah, And I right. still think of them on a regular basis and uh, actually not infrequently refer to them in lecture. Not by name, of course, because I want to assume those good ideas. I want the students to assume those good ideas are mine. But in, <laughs> sure. my mind, yeah. in my mind, I'm footnoting you extensively. The mind footnotes are really the best footnotes. <laughs> those are the ones that I count. So. Well, Brent is one of those professors that that everyone just seeks the opportunity to sort of sit at his feet during office hours and hear whatever's on his mind. And and I feel really fortunate many, many years after graduating to have the opportunity to do that again. Just well, thanks, y'all. That, that's, that means a lot to me. I I may be the first guest. I hope it just doesn't go so poorly that I'm the last guest <laughs> on Bible Worm. And also, I wonder if just for the duration of the time, I could be known, at least to the listeners, as as Brent Stronson, just to kind of Williamson, Robertson, <laughs> Stronson. <laughs> it's a nice parallel. Yeah, yeah we've, been, we've been looking for a William Amyson 
to um, sort of round out the that Robin Williams be, and Amy Robertson. That would be amazing. It yeah. is it is downright chiastic, isn't it, with you all? It's, it's beautiful. A, a envelope structure. But Brent Stronson and my, and my husband being named William Robertson is going to... But we digress. We digress. Yeah, Will and I cancel each okay. other out. We were afraid the universe was going to implode the first time we met, but but we all survived. It's amazing. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure and a privilege. So... Professor Strawn. <laughs> That's brilliant. Have you listened to the podcast on being? I have maybe uh, maybe in a the couple past, times but not but past. not lately, not lately. Okay, so so this is one of my favorite podcasts, and I talk about it a lot on this show. And I would like the opportunity now to pretend that I am Krista <laughs> Tippett. Okay. And ask you the question that she always opens with. Ooh, okay, pressure. Which is. Can you tell us something about the spiritual background of your childhood? Ah, yes, I can. Um, and is, does she look, does she, Krista Tippett, or you channeling Krista Tippett? Is, is, there, is there looking for like a particular adjective or a moment? It's just more general kind of background Really story. general. So some okay. people talk about like specifically, you know, a church. Some people talk about, ex, you know, experiences in nature. Some people talk about mm. music or parents or science, you know, it could be mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, so I think what I would say is that I was raised in uh, the Church of the Nazarene, which is an offshoot of the Methodist Church at the turn of the 20th century. It is an American holiness, uh, Wesleyan denomination, so it kind of has this John Wesley Methodist heritage, as well as the kind of American holiness revival uh, movement of the um, early 20th century as its forebears. And so one can imagine a little bit about the, that, that denomination on the basis of those two things, uh, Wesleyan, Arminian, non-reformed, uh, but also with these sorts of uh, evangelistic, revivalistic, pietistic, and holiness mm-hmm. roots. Um, that's one piece of my childhood upbringing, which I could talk more about, particularly kind of the notion, the, the, the strength of the holiness tradition in, in its sort of ideas of separateness and difference and distinction mm. among religious adherents. And then the other thing that kind of goes with it, nuances it, perhaps chastens it, is I was raised in San Diego, California, in the Southern mm-hmm. California, in a very relaxed, mellow, laid back kind of uh, environment. I, I think those two things uh, combine in a unique way about my upbringing, um, which was in a very a devout family with my parents, very committed to church work as well as a Christian higher education at, at college. I love that. And I see how those things combine. I see how those things combine in your teaching. I don't think I had quite put them together. I don't know. Maybe I knew those things about you and maybe I didn't. But um. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question because it does sort of, it, it picks up on the fact that we really are, you know, products of where we come from. I mean, we the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say, but sometimes it rolls downhill a little ways, you know. Sure. <laughs> right. And our spiritual upbringing doesn't end at the end of our childhood, you know. That's right. <laughs> right. That's we right. are still that's right. we are still growing and, and evolving people. I'd say one final thing is I'd say I'm profoundly thankful for for my yeah. childhood religious upbringing. I, I know that not everyone can say that. And some people are quite um, you know, get very disenchanted over theirs or, or damaged by it. But, but I wasn't, even if I'm not exactly the same person as I was, which of course, none of us are as we grow and mature, but uh, I, I, I have no 
damage or and disgruntlement about you know how I was raised and and sort yeah. of uh my upbringing so yeah. yeah I'm thankful for that I know not everybody can say that so I'm thankful I love that. that I love it so the title of your book is lies my preacher told me will you talk a little more about where the title comes from and whether or not the preachers in our audience should be offended by this title <laughs> yes apologies to all preachers I occasionally preach myself so um, the title comes as I say in the preface of the book I think yeah yeah you I, do talk about it in the preface of the book yeah yeah I mean it was it was a you know it's a it's intended to be a catchy title on the one hand but it cribs from a book a famous book on on U.S. history by James Lowen called lies my teacher told me and Lowen wrote a book uh this this well-known book that's sold millions of copies now uh about American history textbooks usually used in high school context college context and uh, he just found them to be um deficient and so he wrote this book and uh and it, it was uh, quite popular and it's gone into multiple editions and whatnot um so my title cribs off of what of his and and it not only in terms of the title, but also in terms of how he immediately sort of uh, nuances what his, his title, and I do in my book as well. He says, uh, Lowen says, it's it's not every teacher. In fact, it's mostly lies my history books told me, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then he sometimes says, well, lies about 70% of maybe my, my teachers told me or something like that. So for me, it's uh, it's it had to have a title and I did toy with lies my Sunday school teacher told me or something like that. But uh, the, the issue is mostly that wherever we've, we've heard and we've heard some sort of misinformation, mm-hmm. uh, and that's usually, you know, um, in the case of religious communities, it's associated up the chain with someone responsible for education in the, in the community uh, at hand. So it's, uh, that's where the title comes from. But again, I, I want to nuance it that it's not it's not just preachers. It could be Sunday school teachers. It could be uh, rabbis. It could be uh, parents to their children, uh, small groups, friends to one another, whatever. And so it's not just preachers. No offense to just preachers. And also uh, mm-hmm. no offense in the sense that it's not, as I say in the book, it's not necessarily always lying. It's not always necessarily intentional deception, but sometimes just a case of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, inaccurate or incomplete information. And so in the book, I actually call them mistruths rather than mm-hmm. lies to mm-hmm. sort of soften the blow a little bit. Hopefully preachers won't write me off forever. I mean, I think it is true that, you know, I work adjacent to clergy. I'm not a member of the clergy myself, but the span of that job is ridiculous. Oh, like yeah. the number yeah. of things that clergy people do and are responsible for in the various areas in which they're gifted is huge. Mm-hmm. And so, um, or the areas so, that they're not gifted and they, they or the areas need, that they're need, not, but they're responsible they, yeah, for. Responsible for, exactly. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. I think it's a, a great thing to have a scholar who is who is committed to the life of religious community, but to have a scholar come in and and lay this stuff out. I think it's useful for the layperson, but also useful for the preacher who maybe doesn't have a PhD yeah. in, you know, in Bible. To be right. able to have a little more nuanced look at some of these really hot topics. You hit on some hot topics. Yeah, well, thanks. And of course, I wrote the book uh, from the start with the presses at the presses sort of invitation, you know, not only for clergy, but also for for lady yeah. and in yeah. and, and adult education context. It's got discussion questions at the end of each chapter and so forth. So I hope it is something that 
that will get into the hands of, of more people than the typical scholarly work. And I, I know my parents, for instance, uh, have, have had book clubs around it. Thanks, mom and dad. Thanks. <laughs> I don't think my parents have listened to this podcast. They, I don't, my, I'm sure my parents haven't listened to Bible. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. My mother-in-law was a faithful listener for a little while, but I think she faded out too. So yeah. anyway, oh, wow. that doesn't bode well. <laughs> <laughs> the worm got in the, and then left. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. No, that was really one of the things that I th- was thinking as I read this book is a lot of pastors, at least in the circles that I we kind of move in, probably know this stuff, right? They're seminary educated. They've they've thought about all of these issues, but oftentimes are in congregations that have not necessarily thought about this stuff. And so instead of them sort of having to like the pastor having to like do all of this work sort of as it comes up, here's a nice right. study that you could do that says, okay, let's let's talk about all of these kind of misconceptions that people bring with them about the Bible into our congregations. Right. Um, it could be a really helpful way to get a congregational conversation started. Yeah, I hope so. Even stuff. if even if even if my read doesn't convince, and I, I don't right. imagine that it will always convince, or, or maybe will convince many at, at, at many points in the book, but I think it at least does give some some uh, fodder for discussion. Yeah. Brent, one of the themes that you hit on in a couple different ways in the book is trying to dispel the mistruth that the Bible is a history book. Mm. So you spend a little time talking about, you know, how David probably didn't write many or any of the Psalms, how Moses most likely didn't write much or any of the Pentateuch. Um, You also talk about how even the historical books themselves, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, aren't really historical in the way that we tend to mean history. Mm-hmm. So if we take your case that the Bible isn't a history book, then can you talk a little bit about how you understand the way in which the Bible is still truthful, mm-hmm. even if it's not history in the way that we mean history? Just a little yeah. question to start off. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, that's a, Yeah, that's right. What about, can I go back to my spiritual upbringing? So I was in San Diego. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a great question and a big one as Amy just, just uh, joked. I think what I want to say, you know, about it, 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 it is, is several things. One of which, of course, is that I think what a lot of modern people, especially kind of in, in sort of lay modes think is that the word history is somehow coterminous with the word truth yeah. uh, or veracity. So mm-hmm. something is historical is the kind of another way that we say synonymously it's, it's true. And that I think is really a, a, a product of, of living where we live now on this side of the enlightenment and rationalism and the Renaissance, and even to some degree, the reformation. And I just think it doesn't take very long for us to think about modes of truth that are not historical. Mm-hmm. Movies that have communicated profound truths to us that are not documentaries, uh, you know, novels, um, poetry, et cetera. Uh, and so I think that's the first thing is to take a chink out of the argument that history equals truth and veracity. Actually, truth and veracity is a, 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 a you know, many colored phenomenon <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and historical facticity is just one small piece of it. It's a much bigger beast than that. So I think that's one thing I would say. The other thing I'd say is that, relatedly, I think, is that modern kind of contemporary folk notions of of history um, sort of assumes that the way we think about history is the way people 
in the biblical world thought about history. And of course, it's patently not the case. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, if it, whether it's Herodotus and Thucydides or Josephus, you know, whether it's classical secular historians or, or Jewish, ancient Jewish historians, they didn't do history like we do now. I mean, just to name the most obvious thing, they had no access to the archaeological record like we do. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, they wouldn't have known about tells or different sites and strata and all the rest. In fact, we know now more about strata than they did in 1950, right? I mean, so most of these early archaeological investigations, you know, archaeologists would just are sad about because they destroyed as much as they, I mean, they, they didn't go about it the right way. Of course, all archaeology destroys its evidence as it goes. So, that's to say that the ancient history is different. So you could actually say that much of the Bible is historiographic. I'd be okay with that. I think mm. that Joshua through Kings has a historiographic aspect to it. I just don't think it's contemporary history. And also, I don't think the juice lies in the history bit. The mm-hmm. juice lies elsewhere, especially for people of faith. And, you know, if, if we're only interested in reconstructing a kind of history of ancient Israel, then yeah, we need the historiographical. That's where the juice is. But for people of faith, I really don't think they care primarily about, you know, uh, the niceties of the Neo-Assyrian king list or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. They're thinking about something else. And what is that something else? Well, it's not just history, uh, at least in this, in this way that we think about it in the post-Enlightenment period. So that, that's a beginning, at least. I love the way you said that. I, the juice is not in that question. Mm-hmm. You know, I think often I will be asked whether I think something is historically true. And I'm like... I mean, I guess I could arrive at an answer to that question, but I, but that for me feels like a distraction <laughs> from, yeah, from right. what feels most resonant to me, which is different than saying it doesn't, the historical context doesn't matter. Right. Because if you have historical context, it helps you get to the resonance, get to the heart of, of, of what the writer was trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do think you can get. Well, Stuck also, like there, there's a sense in which everything is profoundly historical. You can't, you can't escape it. I mean, how, how do we know this Hebrew or Greek word means this at all? You know, mm-hmm. that's a profoundly historical question that's based meta. on historical philology, et cetera, right? And it's meta, but, it, but at least it's based in part on ancient <laughs> yeah. manuscripts and the study of, of, of language and so forth. But, but there's also something to be said that the Bible itself is a historical kind of empirical datum. And it's my my colleague, Duke colleague Stephen Chapman, who's helped you know helped me sort of see this again afresh and anew recently in some of his own writing. That you know you could talk about hypothetical movements behind you know uh, this section of scripture or or this sort of social conflict that might have given rise to this part of scripture or these sources and traditions that were woven together by somebody to make the the Torah as we now have. All of that may be right. Who knows exactly? But what we do know is we've got the Pentateuch, right? We've got yeah, the Pentateuch. Yeah. Now, in more than one form, sure, of course, we've got more than one form. We have the Septuagint and the Hebrew and the Syriac and the Vulgate. And all but we've got it. And that's actually an empirical datum that needs to be reckoned with. It's as significant as, if not more significant, as an empirical datum because we have access to it in a way that we don't to the hypothetical things behind it. And so I, I, I think there's some sense which is profoundly historical, but in terms of meaning, uh, history isn't where all the juices are. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So moving from one small question to another, <laughs> let's just get this out of the way here. To what extent do you think of the Bible as a human book or a divine book? 
for a divine inspiration filtered through a human lens because words come from human understanding comes from the human realm or mm-hmm. can you talk about how those <laughs> things relate a little bit in your, let's say in your spiritual life or in your academic life. I don't know if, if even mm. you separate those two mm-hmm. modes. Yeah. This is another easy question. I'm, I appreciate y'all having me on the show. <laughs> some softball, you know, some softball. So I think maybe to pick up on this last, last little phrase you mentioned, I, I do my best to not bifurcate. Yeah. I'm trying not to bifurcate my life of the mind and the life of yeah. the spirit, whatever, however you want to put it. Um, my scholarship and my, my religious faith. I, try to hold those together. I think they should inform one another, both directions. I don't see them as inherently or necessarily at odds. Uh, and I, and, and I should say, you all know this as well as I do. That's not the case for all Bible scholars, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of Bible scholars only sort of survive as religious adherents by bifurcating, um, heavily between the life of faith and the life of scholarship. And some don't bifurcate and leave the life of faith behind forever thinking scholarship is somehow more true or accurate or whatever. I'm obviously not in either of those camps. I try to hold these things together. It's messy. It's not always easy, but, um, but I try. I think that more directly to the question, and I, I think I probably, I don't know if I have a pithy way of putting it. I, I used to like this idea drawn from, you know, uh, it's actually drawn from Christian theology and particularly Christology and uh, the doctrine of Christ as fully God and mm-hmm. fully human. I used to like that as an analogy that mm-hmm. many Christian biblical scholars have used to describe the Bible, that the Bible is somehow fully divine and fully human. I don't like that analogy as much anymore, just because, well, you know, as a Christian, I think uh, the Bible's a different thing than, uh, you know, a member of the Godhead in my understanding <laughs> of things. You know, so so God, God's a little different than, than the Bible. Like I don't want to be guilty of bibliolatry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Though I have to say, if I had a heresy, that would probably be it. Right? I mean, yeah. we all we all have heresies, and we all have our heresies. My favorite. If you, you know, had a heresy, might might be a little bit optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I do have a heresy. In being being Wesleyan or Arminian, it's Pelagius. Okay, I'm just going to name it for everybody. I'm a Pelagian or semi. <laughs> that's when all the Reformed people turning it off now. No, turning it off. Um, but in terms of, of the Bible, bibliolatry is, I think, an ever-present danger. And I like what, um, you know, Paul Tillich described. He called it the Protestant principle with all apologies to non-Protestants. But in fact, he said it's not found solely in Protestantism. And it's found, obviously, in Judaism and, and Catholicism, too. But that is he, what he called the Protestant principle was the refusal to identify the infinite, that is, God, with any finite reality. Hmm. Um, including scripture. So there's, there's something different, right? At the same time, I'm enough of a Protestant Christian and a low church Protestant Christian that the, uh, that the doctrine of scripture is pretty high. And so even though the infinite God and the finite text are not coterminous, there is in my claim of faith and belief, a, a proper and integral connection between the two. <clears throat> this is the, to invoke language of special revelation as opposed Mm -hmm. to general revelation or whatever. 
And so, you know, I think one of the first things I say in my introductory classes in seminary context is the first thing that, that I wanted to say about the Old Testament um, when I'm teaching my intro to Old Testament is that this is the word of God for the people of God. That's the first thing I want to say. Now, that has to be unexplained, right? What is the word of God and how is it for the people of God and, and all the rest? What does it mean to say the Bible is authoritative or useful or whatever? A lot has to be said. What does it mean to call the Bible a word of address to us? A lot has to be said, but that's sort of my fundamental starting point. And the more I've taught and thought about it, the more I think that's probably for me, the closest it gets to like bedrock. And that is that to, for me, uh, my, my thinking about scripture is manifestly. Uh, and I think even physically in practices that I try to do every day, is manifestly a disposition towards scripture as a precious sacred thing mm -hmm. above all other books or all other input streams. And so to me, that's maybe the closest I get to sort of illustrating what I think I mean when I say I believe scripture to be this special address of the infinite God to us. Um, so, it, and then it, and it punts a little bit on, you know, all divine or all human or whatever. And I'll say one other footnote is I really like recently um, coming across John Webster's work on Holy Scripture, where he puts the accent uh, not on scripture, on defining, oh, is this sacred text or whatever? And is it authoritative or how, et cetera? He puts the accent on the word holy in that formulation and talks about the process of sanctification whereby God can take up profane things, like, like say in Leviticus, right? Make them clean and make them holy. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think that helps too in, in thinking a little bit about the human origins um, of scripture, that this is a process of sanctification being, being put to use uh, by God for God's purposes. Well, I'm going to have to chew on that one for a while. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I like that. There's a lot in there. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to disagree with in there, <laughs> but well, you yeah, asked, I mean, you asked, so I had to, <laughs> I, and, 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 and I think this will circle back later with some other questions that I have where my heresies will become clear. Um, <laughs> uh, but I like that, that last, um, it's only if you have a heresy. Um, I got yeah. a couple. Yeah. Bible worm kind of specializes in heresies. As, I mean, <laughs> we try to be honest to the text at, at all, as honest as we can be to the text at all points, which oftentimes leads you into points of heresy. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the heresy, the heretics, they meant well. You yeah. know what I mean? They, they, most of them really meant well. And they're trying to figure things out and they're floating things. And it's not that they're entirely wrong. It's that it's that other people come along later and say, well, that's just a tiny bit off. You know what I mean? And so, and then let's, but, but if you didn't have the first idea, how would you know, right? How would you know to kind of flex and adjust or whatever? So, you know, it, maybe it's a little case of uh, mistruth versus lies again, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this special episode with Dr. Brent Strawn from Duke University Divinity School. The Bible Worm Podcast is made possible by a great community of listeners who support the podcast through our Patreon page. If you'd like to become a Bible Worm supporter, you can join for as little as $4 a month, which will get you a really great Bible Worm sticker and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. Plus, you'll get ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to any more messages like this one. At higher levels, you can get early access to episodes, monthly video chats with the Bible Worm Collaborative, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. See patreon.com slash Bible Worm Podcast for details. 
Thanks so much for listening. And now back to this week's special episode. So reading this book as a Jewish person, some of the misinformation, I, you know, I was like, yeah, no, that that's clearly patently false in my head. So I don't need to read, you know, right that particular thing. But I will say... I lead a weekly Torah study here that is mostly Jewish participants, some Christian participants. And the chapters that I immediately turn to because I need help were the chapters about the idea that God is mean mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible and the idea that the Bible is violent. The Hebrew yeah. Bible is violent over and above whatever happens in the New Testament. Or right. even if you take the New Testament out of it, that this is a text that is uncom- has a mean God and too much violence. Right. And so I want to ask you a couple of things about about that section of text for my own learning. Yeah, please. And and, and I'm eager to hear how you you receive the whole book in, in, from a Jewish perspective and, and be working in a in a, a Jewish context. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was conscious of some of these things and being careful. I mean, even the first mistruth, right? I wanted to be very careful how I talked about that. Um, so anyway, but yeah, lead on with to the to the meanness and the violence. You know, let's let's talk about the meanness and the violence because these are these are troubling to Jewish readers of this text mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. So I loved what you said about the, the idea that I would not that God is mean in the New Testament too, but that there are boundaries. You know, there mm-hmm. are there are boundaries and there are consequences. Right. And I know that. In this podcast, you know, working together with Bobby and reading through some of the New Testament texts, I am repeatedly surprised because I have this weird sort of American cultural expectation (laughs) for the New Testament to be like hugs and lollipops and like everything is great and everything's acceptable and whatever. And and that is not what's in there. No, no, not at all. But I also, I wonder if there is a genre or subject matter difference that sort of exacerbates this idea that the Hebrew Bible God is meaner or more violent. Mm. And so what I mean by that is the New Testament texts are written over a shorter time Mm -hmm. than the Hebrew Bible texts. And I think are, they're just of a different genre than the the range of of genres that I Mm -hmm. see in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Specifically, there's no conquest in the Mm -hmm. New Testament. Mm Whereas if the, if the canon of the new, this is a very heretical question. So brace mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. If the canon of the new Testament were still be, were still open and being written at the time of the crusades, right. it would be a much different yeah. right. text. Right. No, I, I think so. In fact, I think I may have, have said as much or implied as much that yeah. if, not, if not in this book, then in a couple other things recently that, you know, I like Klaus Vestermann has this old book called a thousand years in a day and the thousand it's about the whole Christian Bible and a thousand years is the Hebrew Bible and a day is the new Testament, you know, like a week and a half max. Right. That's right. So in terms of how long it took sort of to write compared to this, this, you know, millennium that gave rise to the old Testament Hebrew Bible, the new Testament's written in such a brief compass. If you made that, if you stretched that out for a thousand years, like the history of Israel to the, to the first thousand years of the Christian church. Yeah. You'd have all sorts of things to talk about uh, the Holy Roman empire and, and conquests and all the rest. And we would see uh, 
every, you know, things that, that trouble the conscience of a modern reader, we would mm-hmm. see those as pronounced in this expanded New Testament as we would in the Old Testament. I think also we have to name it, or at least I want to name it from what, what I think part of the problem here, and that is profound ignorance about what the Old Testament contains and how it mm-hmm. contains what it contains, and also profound ignorance about the New Testament mm-hmm. too. So these are just sort of like characters, uh, characters of the of the of the two testaments, and um, and then a simplistic, uh, you know, pitting them against one another um, by you know, sorry, simple minds for simple purposes. And I think probably those purposes are at root profoundly psychological. Um, and I, I talk about this a little bit in, in this book and also have talked about it more extensively elsewhere in terms of why I think people are sometimes so put off by uh, scriptural violence. Um, it's not that it's not a good thing to be put off by, but it strikes me as profoundly disingenuous at the same time uh, in light of our, our practices of violence in our culture and our, our devotion of extensive leisure time to violence in our entertainment media. Something's going on there. (laughs) There's some sort of disconnect. I don't like violence. Oh, wait, I do when it's on Netflix and Amazon Prime and Showtime and HBO Max. I love it. I want to watch it. And I have no problem figuring out what kind what what the kind of violence is for but suddenly when i come to the bible i'm at a loss it's just it's just sort of poor analysis in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. i really love this section of the book too it was probably where i got the deepest engaged with what you're talking about and one of the things if i understood you correctly one of the things i really took a lot out of is um you were making a distinction following uh, abraham joshua heschel heschel um between the wrath of god and the God of wrath, that is yeah. a God who is wrathful, right. a God who at times expresses wrathfulness. And if right. I understood you correctly, you were actually trying to sort of protect that sense that God's wrath is important. If you just have, if you just have a God who is loving all the time, you actually lose something important. Did, yeah. did I get that right? And can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, totally got it right. And that's exactly what Heschel says. And if anyone who's listening hasn't read Heschel's the prophets, especially these two chapters on the wrath of God, you know, stop everything, turn off the podcast, <laughs> go to Amazon, buy it and read these two chapters. They're worth the price of the book. And they've profoundly shaped my thinking about this issue forever. And, you know, and there's so many just, he, he wrote that book. Let's just acknowledge, you know, he wrote that first draft of that book as his dissertation when he's 26. Wow. So c- mm. come on, you know, like seriously, that's it's just a, a bar. bar. No, we can't attain to that. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, he might have a future, right? It seems like he shows some promise in that dissertation. <laughs> yeah, but did he ever have a podcast though? I know, probably <laughs> not. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so is he? No, I'm just kidding. So, you know, he makes this profound distinction that the wrath of God in the Bible is a uh, is equivalent of a transitive verb. It takes an object. It's not a state of verb. It doesn't describe that God is in the divine self, always angry or a God of wrath, uh, deus irae, but but rather there is something called the wrath of God, the era day that that takes an object. And what God's mad about in the Bible, according to Heschel, I think he's just, is exactly right, is, is sin and injustice. If you take care of those things in the Bible, God's anger goes away. Um, so he's got just so many wonderful phrases in this book about kind of illustrating the concept, but 
two of my favorites are uh, as follows. He says, uh, and I, th- I think I'm getting this mostly word for word. This is one of the meanings of the wrath of God, the end of indifference. I mean, that's just, God is not indifferent about sin and injustice in the human community or in the world. God's angry about it. God wants it to be set right. Why? Because God's like a pissy yeah. little annoy, you know, person who's small-minded and, and holds vendettas. No, because God is interested in the benefit and the flourishing of the entire community, human, mm-hmm. animal, otherwise. So that's one of them. And, and another phrase he uses is uh, the secret of God's wrath is God's care. And that, so therefore, when God's angry and sends the prophets, for instance, and this conversation in Heschel takes place within his book on the prophet, the prophets are this intervention, right? This, this sent, these sent messengers to intervene, to say, you know, it's not quite without hope yet. If you repent, if you turn, you know, it's the great Hebrew word, shuv, you turn, then things can be set aright again. Even Amos, the most you know, sort of unremitting mm-hmm. prophet of, of doom, has in there with God speaking, seek me and live, seek me and live. So I think that what you said is exactly right, Bobby, and I give full credit to Heschel on that. Um, that is true about scripture. And it's also true in the New Testament about the wrath of God. Yeah. And so when we don't like the wrath of God, when moderns don't like the wrath of God, I fear it's a telltale sign that on the one hand, they don't read very well, they don't know their scripture very well. And B, maybe they're too comfortable with yeah. being indifferent about sin and injustice, maybe because they're indifferent about sin and injustice in themselves. And I'm talking to myself, I'm talking to myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I don't like the wrath of God because it might be coming for me. Yeah. <laughs> now that, you know, that bit you just quoted of, of your book is actually one of the quotes I pulled. We do, perhaps we don't like divine judgment and wrath because we are perfectly comfortable with injustice um, and indifferent to evil. And, that that cut me a little bit there too, because I mean I like God to be happy and loving and 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 comfortable, and right. I and I am uncomfortable with God's wrath. I think for exactly that reason that I then it makes me examine my own positionality. It, it reminded me a little bit of James Cone's Black Theology of Liberation, where he he talks about how God's love and God's wrath are flip sides of the same coin. Yeah, because God's love for the oppressed can only be expressed as wrath toward the oppressor. Yeah, um, and I come back to that sort of idea a lot in in terms of trying not to wash out God's capacity to be angry. Yeah. Once you've done that, then God has an in, inability to act in the right. world. Heschel yeah. would, I think, fully agree. And I just want to, as a footnote, say how he was involved with MLK and the civil rights movement Yeah. in the 60s. But I also want to point out to go back much earlier to the second century to this uh, Arch heretic, which is who is literally the the the, the favorite heretic of, of many Christians yeah. I know. Who you know, Marcin wanted to do away with the Old Testament. It's not the same. This is the Old Testament God's mean, New Testament God's nice. All that stuff traces back to to, to Marcion. And when uh, the early church writer Tertullian wrote his books against Marcion, he said, "This is one of the primary ways we know that Marcion's viewpoint." Is wrong, and that Marcion's uh, New Testament God, quote unquote, that Marcion concocted, is not the true God. The reason is, is because Marcion's God is a simplistically good God, hmm. nice all the time, kind all hmm. the time, loving. Which meant for Tertullian, exactly what you said, Bobby, that this God doesn't actually care about things that matter, doesn't care enough to set injustice right, doesn't care enough to help uh, the oppressed. 
the widow, the orphan, etc. And we know from scripture that is exactly who God is. So Marcion's mm. nice God is definitely not the true God. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just a, yeah. a stunning statement that, that blows a lot of modern mm. people's minds. I want to continue in this sort of area of uh, exploration, but but press a little bit. Okay, go. So I found what you said about God's righteous anger very compelling. And um, it, it, like, as Bobby said, it really stuck with me. And I was thinking about it sort of throughout the week and, and weeks that I was reading your book. And I do think modern folks are sometimes just uncomfortable with those hard boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I need to confess that sometimes it is not so clear to me what the sin is that God is so mad about or why it's such a big deal. Right. So I guess I just tend to maybe empathize with the with the hapless Israelites maybe more than <laughs> yeah, yeah. More than the text would want me to, but mm -hmm. Do you have moments reading the text where, where you have an experience like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I, I think actually Heschel also has a section of this in his book where I think in part it reflects our, I mean, don't, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. For me, in part, it seems to reflect my own, you know, kind of thorough indoctrination into American individualism or Western individualism mm. writ large. Uh, how can I be held responsible for the sins of a few, mm. right? I mean, like if the injustice is from the top down, I mean, if it's the politicians who are who are making these wrong decisions vis-a-vis -vis foreign policy, as it seems to be the case in a lot of mm -hmm. these uh, Hebrew Bible texts, why are all of the Israelites, as you say, these hapless Israelites minding their own business, why are they held responsible? Well, like, let's go back to, to Egypt, for instance. Why does everybody in Egypt get whacked for Pharaoh's sins? That's the same sort of question in a way that we could and ask. That's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, and it's a legitimate question, I think. And and I think that there's a couple of things we can say in response, and, and none of which are sort of definitive or that solve it. But for me, I think part of it has to do with the um, the nature of the literary presentation, right? This is the literary presentation we've been mm -hmm. given. Mm -hmm. And we may not fully buy it. We may be resistant readers, and that's okay. Uh, but at the end of the day, that this is sort of the warp and woof of the of the text. The warp and woof of the text suggests, in the case of Egypt, uh, everybody's held responsible for uh, Pharaoh's sins. Maybe because a lot of them participated. Maybe because even when they didn't participate, they were somehow complicit. They somehow benefited from it, you know. Or maybe it's because God's making a point. You know, making a point to Egypt and the Egyptians, making a point also to God's people, Israel, about mm -hmm. who they are and how precious they are in God's eyes. But not not Avadim slaves, but Segula, mm -hmm. treasured possession, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and after four hundred years of enslavement, God's got some work to do to convince the people that that's exactly what they are, and that God hasn't been just sleeping on the job, right? So it's going to take some work. It's going to take going to the extra extra mile. You know, this is why in the plague narrative, you know, Pharaoh's done right at, at plague seven or eight. And God's like, I'm not done. I got a few more. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, why? Why? Pharaoh's ready to let him go. No, I just I got a few more things to say. You know, why? Why not just shut it down? God's God's proving God's self, I think. 
to, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to Israel. And according to the formula that all the world might know that I am mm-hmm. the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. So that's some of the literature, right? I mean, that's just sort of a literary presentation. We don't have to succumb to it. But I think to be good readers, we have to at least succumb to it for a period of time. And this is how I would like draw a differentiation between how people sometimes watch Netflix versus how they read scripture. When they're writing net, watching Netflix and their hero just kills 80 bad guys uh, in the movie, you know, uh, and they don't think a minute about those bad guys' lives, their families, their, you know, mm-hmm. how they died, et cetera. They're just tracking the hero, right? And these are bad guys who are in the way of the hero. Uh, or heroin. And, and that's, that's the, that's the plot line. I'm watching. Thank goodness. The hero put that guy down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's kind of succumbing to the flow of the narrative. And we do that all the time, sort of implicitly we watch movies, not necessarily rightly. I think we should resist a lot of the violence that are in our movies, but nevertheless, it's, it's striking that so many modern people have a hard time then when they switch gears to read the Bible to not have a similar willing mm-hmm. suspension of disbelief for it for it for a, for a time mm-hmm. and they shouldn't do it forever i think maybe not in this book but in some other things i they shouldn't do it forever they should worry about the bible's violence and i think they should worry about it because i think the bible itself is worried about violence and therefore works on strategies of containment and control which in the broader perspective shows that something like the conquest is something that the that the Hebrew Bible itself is sort of concerned about, that Israel itself is concerned about and concerned with restricting and limiting as much as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. Justifying, yes, you know, explaining, yes, providing reasons for, yes, it wasn't willy-nilly, it wasn't, you know, a personal vendetta, it was, providing thoughtful reasoning for, but also sort of containing and limiting to, to back then and there so that there's other ways of being with one's enemies, other ways of being with one's neighbor than just mm-hmm. conquest, you know. That's really helpful thinking to me. And, you know, I often, um, I work with a lot of 12-year-olds to write their bar and bat mitzvah speeches, mm-hmm. and they are deeply distressed by these kinds of things in the text, yeah. rightly so, I think. Yeah. And when push comes to shove, if I really can't can't give them any other angle into it, I, we always sort of land on, well, if this is really distressing to you, Find where it's happening in the world right now, because I promise you it is, mm-hmm. and do something about it yeah. there. Like if if what yeah. the violence in the scripture does for you is holds up this sort of what we think will be a utopian narrative of how everything ought to be, and you don't want that to be in your utopia, right? then go do something about it in the world. And it's probably, to be frank, more profoundly impactful because it's out there in the world than it is just in the pages of scripture, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a whole lot. <laughs> Maybe I'm letting the Bible off the hook here, but you know, I think that a lot of the problems that we encounter that are also reflected in the pages of scripture are more pronounced and having more impact because they are on our uh, television screens or in our uh, music playlists. And whereas we're more profoundly impacted by those things than we are about the Bible. And the Bible, in my perspective, and here again, Bible professor and trying to save it and all that, <laughs> Bible professor has, again, I think the Bible itself has some ways of containing, reframing, restraining violence that I don't see in, in so many popular media streams. 
It's not curtailed. It's not contained. It's not contained within the bounds of Holy Scripture. It's not contained within the bounds of prayer. It's not contained within the liturgy or something like that. It's just boundless. And that, to me, is a far more problematic way of being in the world than struggling with Scripture. So I think we should struggle with Scripture. These things strike us, even if they just strike us because we're moderns and it turns out that we shouldn't be bothered by it because it's anachronistic in some way, whatever the thing is. I still think that the difficulties of Scripture should call forth from us, not just protest or disgust or anger, but a resolution to study harder. Um, to think harder, not just about that issue, but about other ways, the traditions, these are profoundly rich traditions, right? Christianity and Judaism and the scripture. How does the tradition speak back to it? Um, how does the scripture itself and the traditions around it work to, to fix, uh, to reclaim, restore? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in, in, the, in the early church stuff with the allegorical readings, I mean, it was when the text was particularly disturbing that the early church writers thought this is where it means more than just what you think it means. It has mm-hmm. multiple means. And of course, there's the allegorical, deep allegorical readings in the synagogue as well. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's something too, is to not just let a reader, especially a new reader, be just sort of offended and jump mm-hmm. to outrage and throw the Bible away for the rest of life. Actually, that occasion for disgust or discomfort might be the entree into a whole new world. Yeah. So, so. yeah. And maybe to point to connect one other thing, maybe that's the picture of what it means to think about scripture as God's word, to, to refuse to leave it behind, mm-hmm. but to continue to use it as a vital or, in my mind, the most vital resource as one navigates life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that tension that we're sort of talking around right here, where we had just a minute ago said letting go of divine violence has repercussions about justice. And now we're kind of saying, and also divine violence. I mean, the violence in the Bible does authorize violence in the world, and it, and it has done, and it continues to do. And mm-hmm. so the sort of what's in the text versus what happens in the world is not so neatly separated. And right. so if we're people of faith, or especially if we're people who are preaching this stuff on Sundays, trying to think about how do we maintain the importance of God being able to have wrath while at the same time guarding against mm authorizing violence in our own world. Like this is a really complicated conversation, but I really appreciate what you're saying, which is in some ways what the Bible is doing is it's inviting us into that conversation. And we don't, Mm. we don't just like take the Bible, you know, as passive creatures and do whatever it does to us, but we're sort of invited in as interpreters to wrestle with like, what do we need to take and what do we need to leave behind? Yeah, I I think that's right. And and what it, you know, for me, what this comes back to is, is the sort of, inescapable it's i mean in some ways you know i don't like to admit it but it's true it's sort of what john barden calls the inescapable literary nature of biblical interpretations are inescapably textual and that means you're going to have good readers and poor readers right and you're going to have people who draw conclusions well and people who draw conclusions poorly and people who can understand differences in genre and people who can't the question at that point is, is, it, is there a problem with the literature or is it a problem with the readers of the literature, right? I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think both have to be considered. And I, in my judgment, in teaching, especially new students, so much of it, the, the problem is located as if it solely exists in the literature. I mm-hmm. think as much of the problem is more with what's in front of the yeah. literature, the reader, the reader's capacity. Again, I don't want to be naive. 
But I think if I'm watching some, I'm watching, let's say John Wick. Okay, I admit I've watched John Wick. Okay, you know, there's not much plot line there other than that he kills 800,000 people in each movie. So multiply it by three. I've watched John Wick, you know, and I'm kind of succumbed to the narrative, you know, so I can I can see how I can succumb also to the Joshua narrative. Or mm-hmm. something like that. But I also see how people might not want to succumb. And I think that there's two ways of not succumbing to the Joshua narrative. One is because it just strikes me as wrong. Well, I find it disingenuous unless someone also finds John Wick profoundly wrong, right? It's just, it's a, it's a little bit disingenuous at some level. They think there's a case of psychological projection or something. Mm-hmm. Like but, but there's another way of being, I'm not succumbing to Joshua because I know there's these texts in Isaiah and Proverbs Etc. to talk about treating my mm-hmm. enemies and neighbors differently, you know, and more uh, profoundly uh, uh, benevolently. Um, and that there's these traditions that talk about, you know, everyone being born in Jerusalem, Psalm 87, what a mind blowing song, you know, uh, or whatever it might be. So that therefore I'm, I am bothered by Joshua. I'm succumbing only for a period. And the reason why I'm bothered by it is not because you know, of some, you know, presumed, uh, you know, righteousness on my part, that as if I'm better. I live in the most violent culture in the world, really, right? Um, but instead, I am um, bothered by it because I know the whole tradition quite well. And I know that the tradition is profoundly rich and variegated and includes, as it were, self-correction. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, so I don't mind that kind of bothering. I don't mind that, that kind of critique of Joshua. Mm-hmm. I worry about the knee-jerk critique. Uh, it, it may be valid to a degree, but it's, it doesn't suffice. It's, it doesn't suffice, I think. No, oh, I think we could talk about this topic for the whole rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe the rest of the season. We're just going to have Brent Strong. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's all I got. I got nothing else after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to move from one uh, heresy to another, but both related maybe to Marcion. Mm. One of the mistruths that you identify uh, is this misunderstanding you the way you describe it that the old testament law is nothing but a burden impossible to keep Mm -hmm. and you're trying to say no no it's it's more than that it's other than that right um so i'll tell you that amy and i we we normally we spend the spring semester in the new testament which is you know my home text and is kind of a foreign land for amy in some ways but for the most part uh we read that well together successfully but last spring along about May, we found our way into Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it mm. nearly derailed the podcast. Um, <laughs> Amy because... went for a lot of long runs during that. <laughs> <laughs> it was rough. It was rough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of the reason, as you can anticipate, that it was rough is because Paul seems to say things that are really actually quite close to what you describe as a mistruth. So, for yeah. instance, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law. And right. now that the law came, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. So, right. so there is this sense that the law was something that they couldn't bear. And so now they have freedom in Christ. Right. So the way that I think I want to ask the question is, what do you say to Christians who think that the law, the Torah, is burdensome because of what they read in Paul? Like, yeah. they, they, they seem to, they at least think, and maybe they do, I don't know have a biblical basis for making this particular claim. How do you, how do you respond? Yeah. 
So I think the, the mistruths are so profound and in sometimes in some ways more pernicious than full on lies because there's some accuracy in yeah. them, right? And so, you know, as I say a number of times in the different chapters, there's a shred of truth in this, mis- this mistruth if you look at this text or according to that text. This is what it seems to, to say. So the, the, the question is not does, the question should not be, or the answer to this mistruth, you know, Old Testament law is, is um, nothing but a burden impossible to keep. The, the, the answer or the response to that is not to say, well, Paul seems to say that. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, Paul does seem to say that at some points, but more has to be said than just that, right? So I think two things I would say. One is that, you know, the, is to refer people to, and I, I know it's been reinvestigated of late, and this is not my, my area. I don't presume to be a Paulinist. But I want to refer, of course, to the so-called new perspective on Paul that was uh, really the insight of uh, E.P. Sanders, a New Testament scholar here at Duke University. I think it's 1978, maybe, that he published Paul in Palestinian Judaism, which laid this out and was a really game changer in the field of New Testament studies. And Sanders basically said, what Paul says of all this stuff about the law not justifying you, uh, Sanders said, Paul, no Jew in Paul's day would have disagreed with him. So this is not some new Christian idea that Paul's dropping and he's sort of canceling Judaism. Mm -hmm. E.P. Sanders shows that Judaism at Paul's time before and after thought the same thing. And he called this notion covenantal nomism, that uh, the law, the namas, and hence nomism, plays an important and crucial role within a covenantal framework. Uh, you know, so in Exodus, God saves the people and enters into covenant with them. And, and part of the covenant is the giving of the Torah um, and the Decalogue and, and all the rest, right? So covenantal nomism, Sanders said, was the order of the day. And no uh, Jew would have disagreed with Paul, the Jew and Pharisee, let us say. And so something else is going on in Paul's rhetoric. And at least part of what's going on, again, I'm not a Paulinist, so forgive me all the Paul scholars in the world. Um, I think part of what's going on is that Paul uses the word, the Greek word namas, law, in a whole bunch of ways. And not every time when he says namas is he speaking of the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, we know he's not. There's the law of sin and death, for instance. That's not the law of Moses. And there's uh, so on and so forth, other other types of of namas. So that's one thing I'd say is that I think, um, you know, in New Testament studies for, for 30, 40, 50 years now, there's been a, a lively discussion on the fact that Paul is really not so new when it comes to this. And therefore, maybe saying something in terms of accent that's different than how he's been read. Now, that's, that's been reinvestigated in recent years with some people saying maybe Sanders overstated slightly and maybe it's not true of all. Uh, groups and and sects within Judaism at the time, but nevertheless, um, Sanders I think still is um, is basically right and and carries the day in in my my judgment. So that's one thing. But the second thing I'd say is that you know there's there's this this old phrase you know uh, associated with the Reformation, uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, when you actually look at the Reformation, it's not just sola scriptura. <laughs> it's sola fide, sola gratia. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's a number of solas. Uh, it's never just one. But if you just <laughs> take sola scriptura for a minute, and I, it was Walter Moberly who helped me see this in some of his works. You know, it's not sola Paul. You know what I mean? It's not sola Paul or sola Galatians. You know, there's more 
to the scriptural witness in the Christian tradition. Of course, that includes Old and New Testaments uh, for the uh, for the Jewish tradition. It doesn't include the New Testament, but other perhaps you know uh, authoritative texts. Um, but, but all that to say is that you know it doesn't have to be just Paul. Even if Paul says how what you just sort of said, Bobby, right? That doesn't mean that that's the end of the discussion, right? There's this whole rich dialogue. I mean, there's James in the Bible that seems to take take issue with Paul's uh, faith um, over works, because James says, of course, faith without works is dead. And, and and so there's there's sort of tension within the witnesses, which creates, I think, a kind of dialogue. It could be potentially ethically, uh, you know, stultifying. I mean, maybe we get kind of catatonic. Which decision, who do we go with, Paul or James? I can't decide. You know, I think instead it's better to think of these things as as the scripture in its fullest, most variegated form, offering us a kind of a, a, a toolbox, a set of tools for ethical deployment, depending on when and where, how and, and what. In that sense, I think the kind of genre in some ways of scripture is is most akin to wisdom you know that's trying to create wise uh people and they for they they know how to to bring out the right text at the right time and use it in the right way and so i think paul is an important witness he's not the only witness not even in the new testament and so even if paul says kind of the worst things one thinks he says about the law, which I think can be debated in light of Sanders. Mm-hmm. Even then, there's other things that can be said. There's the witness in the Christian tradition alone of 78.1% of their Bibles being the Old Testament. You know, I, I counted one time, you know, 78.1% of their Bible. That's Protestants, Catholics, of course, Orthodox, even more with the Deuterocanonical books. So, you know, that's that's a powerful witness that says in the history of Christianity, we don't think that Paul is the only and final word about X, Y, or Z, even when it comes to namas, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. There's this, this has to be retained. This has to be kept. This has to be studied. This too is the word of God for the people of God. And so it is that people like Calvin, et cetera, they, they write extensive commentaries on the Torah uh, and they think profoundly about it um, and they respect it. But Calvin says in one place in his institutes, Anyone who would want to do away with Old Test the Old Testament law misunderstands it profoundly. Hmm. So I think there's lots of tools again with intra scripture and then within the traditions around scripture that help us process Paul what he says here or there, kind of within a larger context. Not not to devalue him necessarily, but to not overvalue him at the same time. Those are, I guess, the two things I would say. I really appreciate that. And I, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking is that's one of the the quirks, I think positively and negatively maybe, of lectionary preaching and hence lectionary podcasting, that what we do is we deal with the text that's in front of us. Um, right. And several times today you've pointed us to, uh, well, you need to read this text, but you also need to read it in light of this, the sweep of the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. And so to think about that as both as interpreters, like both, how do we value the text in front of us without conforming it to other things? Right. And also... <laughs> How do we remember that it's not the only text that that we have? I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. Because you got to, I mean, I think, you know, Walter Brueggemann says this in one of his little things about teaching exegesis is he tries to ask his students to think, at least for a moment, what if this were the only text we had? 
Yeah. You know, what is it? What is its witness? I think that's profound, profoundly important because so many times, especially, you know, if we're new to the process, we want to jump to other texts only to kind of chasten or, you know, subdue or subvert the text at hand. Let's really listen to it. Let's stew on it. Let's really think about what it has to say. At the same time, I think the, the, you know, what's so amazing about the rabbis is their total recall of the entire corpus. This is sort of, this is the idea of literary simultaneity, right? The literary simultaneity of the Torah. Um, and so that every text is sort of activated and can be, can be accessed and, and drawn upon when needed. I think that's the best interpretation. I think something that, that lies beyond most of us, it lies beyond me, but it's striving towards it, you know, mm-hmm. and that, but it, but, but it's not too quick. It shouldn't be too quick and it shouldn't be done solely to chase and subvert or, or, or cancel some text in front of me, but to enliven it, to enrich it, and to, and to process it, interpret it. It's a lifelong endeavor. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Magrassi, in his book on uh, spiritual reading, talks about some of uh, these, these great interpreters as living libraries or, or walking concordances, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it's true when you read and you read the rabbis, right? Or when you read Tertullian or mm-hmm. um, these people. I mean, it's just Augustine. It's insane, right? It's insane. Yeah. Most of the day I walk around thinking, it's just too big to keep in my head. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> just how could we, <laughs> how could any of us? I mean, it's an incredulous claim, right? I want to yeah. just acknowledge my, my statement about scripture being like revelation from the infinite God. It's an incredulous claim. And then to think that this book from so long ago should be you know, warranting and guiding the lives of, of millions of people, billions across them. It's an incredible claim. Mm -hmm. And then to think that we could kind of keep this book in our heads and sort of use it in there. It's all just incredible Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in all, in all the realms of of that incredible means. (laughs) Okay. So one of the things that is distinctive about our podcast, our reading of these texts, is that we're an interfaith duo, and Jew and a Christian. And while Jews and Christians have sacred texts that go beyond the Hebrew Bible, both traditions have sacred texts that go beyond the Hebrew Bible, we do share um, this text in common. And so our question for you is what, what in your experience or in your imaginings might be gained by reading this text together from different faiths? And do you think there are particular challenges or pitfalls to this work? Yeah, I think, I think there's great gains and I'm just, I'm delighted that y'all are doing this. I didn't, I'm sorry to be slow on, on, on hearing about it, the Bible worm, but now of course it's jumping to the top. The worm creeps very slowly into your life, but once it's there, (laughs) it's hard to get rid of. Once it's in your ear, it's like those earworms, right? so I think it's fantastic. I love it. And I love that you're working on, uh, on, on Old Testament and New Testament, as it were, from the perspectives of Judaism and Christianity. And of course, you both are such fantastic scholars and thinkers that uh, I'm, I'm already looking forward to We're never the ridiculous. podcast and learning <laughs> all sorts of fascinating <laughs> things. No, of course not. Um, so, you know, I, I think as I think about this, you know, um, my my own sort of route to being an Old Testament professor, Hebrew Bible scholar, was uh, maybe not circuitous exactly. In some ways, it was quite linear, I suppose. But 
You know, I think in part it was because in my religious upbringing, the Old Testament was the undis- great undiscovered mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that it was disparaged, though I would say it probably was at times in the kind of standard Marcionite fare that most American Christians sort of uh, deal with or is in the air. I don't think it was disparaged, but it was um, just not really a thing. And so I went off to college. I had I was Bible major in college, had a Christian school, had wonderful professors, um, truly wonderful professors. And uh, but and they had, you know, terminal degrees. They're all in New Testament. You know, so my Old Testament classes in college were all from New Testament PhDs. So I think I began to think about PhD work as a purely pragmatically in terms of market. Maybe if I got a PhD in Old Testament in my denomination, I could go back, you know. But then I went to seminary and found myself sort of inadvertently in one of the great Bible faculties in the country at that time with no less than nine Hebrew Bible scholars on faculty who were just, uh, you know, they just captured my imagination. And I was sucked in that first semester and the my three profs in Old Testament, I had that first semester ended up being the three profs on my dissertation committee um, nine years later. Um, so... And, and what they just, and they took me back as ad fontes, back to the sources, right? And then, and then back to the ancient Near East and to the languages. This is what kept going back further and further. And of course, then I had to do, and, and I loved it all. <clears throat> and then I sort of woke up one day as I started teaching and, and sort of had to process, how does this fit with the yeah. New Testament stuff, right? I've been so embroiled, embroiled in this and thinking how beautiful and lovely and sufficient it is. But but not everybody sort of agrees. And there's like a lot of, and then there's these people who want to study New Testament all the time. And then who who and then there's these practitioners or religious adherents who kind of disparage the Old Testament. You know, how, how do I put it all together? And I think it's, you know, it's been a it's a it's been an agglutinative process. I mean, piecing things together along the way, thinking about the nature of of the Christian canon uh, and its formation including vis-a-vis, you know, presenting problems like Marcion, you know, um, that 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 becomes a self-conscious decision on the part of the church. Um, I mean, it was was already, the Hebrew texts were already the scripture of the church. That's what the New Testament says and and demonstrates in, in spades. But but then when you have someone like Marcion come along and pose the problem, then the then the the church responds in a more formal way. That that decision is reaffirmed, you know. So thinking about that, also I, I did a lot of New Testament training, even in seminary, particularly Second Temple Judaism. And so to think about the profoundly Jewish roots of, of all the New Testament and even the 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 importance of the Jewish tradition in, in later virginal evidence, like the Syriac Bashita, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I sort of have have been piecing these things together, but I have to admit that one important piece, two important pieces, one biblical, one extra biblical. Or this one is from Paul and Paul's language in in Romans about being grafted in to the tree that is Israel. I mean, to me, that's sort of the the fundamental image as I think about it, being a Christian and my my relationship to Judaism is that you know I am at best just a kind of a late a late branch kind of grafted into this tradition that precedes me, and and I'm thankful for that. Um, so that that's one thing that's helped me. Another thing that's helped me is is a is a line from Reverend Child's Introduction to Old Testament Scripture, 
And he was actually, you know, profoundly Christocentric in his reading, I think more so than he needed to be, more so than one has to be. I talk about, about that a little bit in the book. But he has, a, he has a point where he's talking about his canonical project, reading the, the, the Bible in its current final form. And he knows, because he's a smart guy, that there's lots of forms that one could take. And he self-consciously decides to, to pick the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, not the Septuagint, which was far more important in the history of early Christianity, um, or the Latin, which was even uh, you know, more important thereafter. He self-consciously picks the Masoretic text. And he says, because this preserves the existential connection between the church and the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And that's always sort of struck me that, that I'm trying to maintain, model, you know, live out an existential connection between me as a Christian and, um, and, and the synagogue and, 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 and Judaism. So, so I think those things are profoundly, that's, that's the benefit, you know, this, to recognize the profoundly important existential connection and frankly, to repair so much damage that has gone on between the two communions, particularly from the Christian side to the Jewish side. That damage is so profound, you know, um, in, the, in the history of Christianity, so pockmarked by horrific atrocities vis-a-vis Jews. It's, it's, it's a miracle to even think about it being reparable at all. Um, and so to think about you two doing a podcast is a sign of great hope, I think, um, for the healing of the world. So I think that's really all benefit. Pitfalls, you know, I think, or difficulties are only those that are common to any type of dialogue, you know, that it can be hard sometimes. It's hard to know about what to do with real difference. When there is a parting of the ways on some discussion, you know, you know, what do you do with that? You know, how do you let it go? How do you let not let it not, you know, how do you not make it personal? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, we talk a big game in our world in, in, in its best forms. We talk a big game about dialogue. It's hard to pull it off. You know, it's hard to pull it off. So maybe smaller microcosms like what y'all are doing again is the way to think about it and, and build out from there. But that's, I think, how I'd answer your question. I love that answer. And I have, I have often thought as we've been doing this podcast that the reason I think we can talk so openly and frankly about these texts is that we sat across the Starbucks table from each other for <laughs> yeah. 10 years mm-hmm. doing, you know, like we, like we go way back. And so, um, right, so right. when there, where there might be points of difference there, you know, in some ways it ties back to what you're saying about context. Like there's the moment, there's the, this text that's pressing your buttons in a certain way, there's this conversation, but the more context you can sort of put into it, it, it does put, I don't know, some, some boundaries, boundaries around the potential violence, you know, like yeah. the relationship can, can yeah. cushion that, um, potential hurt. Yeah. You, you know, each other, you kind of know, yeah, that's kind of like, I suppose, a uh, family too, right? I mean, family, still family, even if they know you. <laughs> well, I just, for the record though, you're talking about the Starbucks that was also known as Starbucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And where they, as I recall, they gave him they a did. birthday They gave me a birthday card more than once. Yeah. <laughs> you might be spending too much time at Starbucks to win. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, good times. Well, y'all, it's so much fun to have the the, the band back together. Brent, thanks for spending some time with thank us you. today. Thank you so much, Brent. Oh, thank it's, you. It's really I only a wish tremendous uh, book. I could, it's, 
think oh, will be a big thanks. help. Well, I only wish I could have uh, asked you all the questions <laughs> that you asked me, and that would have been that would have been better. That would be, I would have learned some uh, a lot of new stuff rather than babbling on about what no, I already no, wrote. No, no. This, is, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, and um, I look forward to other opportunities. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Hopefully, uh, at least some return to SBL maybe in person would be a, is a good thing. And I'm hoping to be down in Atlanta a couple of times this year. So nobody ever just says I'm planning to be in Arkansas. <laughs> you were you know, right I was supposed to pandemic. be and it got canceled. Yeah, remember that? On your I way. know. And they haven't, they haven't yeah. called back. I know I was hoping to see you, but if they do call back, don't, One of these I'll, days. I'll definitely yeah. let you know. We drove yeah, through Little right. Rock once and I told Bobby I was there and we were at the Panera and I told him that I hid something in the Panera for him. To see if you because I was in Atlanta, it. wasn't I? Like I was where you live, and you were where I live. I don't know. It was you were crazy somewhere like else. That. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I had not actually hidden something, so I'm glad he did. I spent <laughs> months looking for that thing that I never found. <laughs> uh, like a yeah, a secret packet right. underneath mm-hmm. one of the tables, it's under the flyer on the bulletin board. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it was your gum. You left your piece of gum. <laughs> All right, friends, our guest today has been Brent Strawn, professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School, and the author of. Lies, My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament, among many other wonderful things. Um, So thanks to Brent for being here. And Amy, we'll be back with our regular episode at the regular time. So I will see you then. See you then. Bye, y'all. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are so grateful to all of our supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled episode of Bible Worm. Till then, keep on digging.